When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, this is Mick Jones of Foreigner, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Hey, I'm Nick DiMatteo, and welcome to Season 5, Episode 41 of Music is Not a Genre. Kind of monumental because I've never done 41 episodes in a season, and it's monumental for another reason, because this is uh, the start of a brand new series, which I'll get into in a second. Thank you, as always, for watching and listening. Please uh, take a moment to support this podcast at patreon.com slash music is not a genre. Go also to youtube.com slash at music is not a genre. Subscribe there. It's free as always. Uh, like and share and comment. I'd love to hear your comments. My website is nickdomadio.com, where you get this uh, podcast, my music, and all everything else. And then, as always, please uh, listen to and support my band, Rec, at recarea.bandcamp.com. So, as I said uh, today, this week, very special, because I'm starting a new series that I'm tentatively calling Backtalk, because it's not an interview. It may look like an interview. For those of you just listening, I have Steve Erickson on camera here and he will be my guest today instead of me running off at the mouth about a subject on my own i've decided to bring someone in who's knowledgeable about a topic something that we can riff on together and explore and this is the first in this series uh hopefully it'll go well enough that we'll do it again uh with steve and with other people this week's topic the first topic for this is south african music uh, we're going to do our best to unravel that. How are you doing today, Steve? Uh, pretty good. How are you? Good. Not bad. Like you said, we kind of wish it was a little bit cooler out there, but you know, we're making it work. So today, as I said, we're talking about uh, South African music. I think the first question I'd like to start with, because we did discuss this, is why aren't we just doing this episode on quote-unquote world or global music as a whole? Well, I think the concept of world music, that's a term that's gone out of fashion lately. I think its flaws have become very glaring, but it's often just been replaced by global music. For instance, I think the Grammys now have a category for global music. If you look at the nominees from last year, it's like people from five different countries. Billboard still has a world music chart. I looked at it a few weeks ago and it was entirely K-pop. It seems to me like that makes about as much sense as saying that British hip-hop is world music because it sounds different than American hip-hop. It's coming from a somewhat different perspective, but it's in the English language, so it's seen as being part of the same genre. Whereas if 
if it was coming from like Africa or the Middle East, it wouldn't necessarily be, be seen that way. And also Africa is just a huge continent that encompasses so many cultures, even within individual countries. For instance, there, there are 11 languages spoken in South Africa. Wow. Two of them are kind of colonial impositions, being Afrikaans and English, but there are nine, you know, indigenous languages as well. For instance, people also say Latin music. But if you look at two most popular artists to come out of Brazil are Astro Gilberto and Sepultura. <laughs> so, you know how they sound nothing alike. And because Sepultura sang in English and were a metal band, even though they were they were Brazilian, most people wouldn't consider that, wouldn't call that Latin music, but it is. That's great. But Latin music has been made by Puerto Ricans or Latinos living within the U.S. You know, Bad Bunny, he's released, I think, five albums at this point, and there's maybe only one or two sentences in English. But he's Puerto Rican, so he's an American, an American citizen. Yep. So saying African music, there are all kinds of different styles. Like there's what's called a desert blues scene around the northwest of Africa in countries like Niger with artists like Madhu Mokhtar and Tinarawen, who are basically, they're basically playing blues-based rock. It sounds somewhat different because their their guitars are, they're playing quarter tones, like they're playing a, a different, they're not using the 12-tone scale. But they've also, like Mokhtar said, ZZ Top as one of his biggest influences, and he, he acted in a remake of Purple Rain. Also, the idea that Africa exists in this isolation chamber where people aren't influenced by what's going on in the in the pop or rock or hip hop in the U.S. and Europe is is not true at all. So it seems like even just focusing on South Africa, you know, you could do a season of podcasts about the various genres. And popular music there is a history going back to the nineteen nineteen thirties. Yeah, and I think. The two things that brings up is one, we do kind of lump together music from a certain language or continent as all one. For example, uh, I know that when I was a kid, if I if I you know knew of somebody like you know Filakuti, I thought, oh, that's that's African music, and it is, but it's but he was from Nigeria, which has a different has different traditions, although many of them overlap than South Africa, and. The, just like any country, it's going to have different flavors and, and ways that things are structured and produced that, that can't be lumped together like that. And, and then when you think of South Africa itself, and I just did kind of a cursory look at what styles have been there that have been prominent at some point in their last, you know, 90, 100 year history. And you have gospel and classical and an African style and acapella, which is huge and penny whistle jive, which is often when we think of certain types of quote unquote, traditional uh, South African music, we hear that kind. It's now known as Quela. But then when you get into soul and jazz and, and punk and disco and rock and alt and goth and pop and reggae and, and all of these, the first thing that a lot of listeners and viewers might think of is, well, what's the difference? You hear all of those genres coming out of the United States and English speaking countries and other countries around the world and metal and Techno, including I'm a piano, which you mentioned, and hip hop. And the point is something that you pointed out in your notes, which is A, we can't uh, reduce a country's music to just one sound because no country has just one sound. 
whether you're talking about the most popular or or anything below that. And B, almost every, probably every country, but almost every country that has, you know, uh, music that's distributed and recording technology and all of that has as diverse an array of styles of music as we do here in the States. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if people in Nigeria would lump together like country and heavy metal and call it American music, but that's kind of the equivalent of what, what happens with just labeling a whole continent, a whole continent as though it had one style of music. I completely agree. And uh, that's, I think, part of what we're going to try to get into here is we're focusing somewhat on the popular music, which I think is is good and important because it's like you said, there's a continuity between our continents and our countries in that from the very beginning, South African popular music borrowed from U.S. music. And as the years went on and decades went on, U.S. music borrowed from South African music. Yeah, um, actually, the penny whistle has been very important in South African music, but it was brought there by British colonialists. The penny whistle also pops up in uh, like Scottish folk music hmm. or Irish folk music, the, the Pope's used to frequently. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And the, in a lot of ways, you can say South African popular music starts with Solomon Linda's song. In, I know I'm going to mangle the pronunciation. Mbude? Mbude, yeah. Mbude, which is an a cappella vo- vocal harmony song. But that, that style of vocal harmonies was introduced to South Africa by Anglican missionaries from the UK. But Mbude is not sung in English, but it found this kind of winding road to becoming a hit around the world, although not in the original version. If you listen to the song, there's this chant, Awee Mawee, Awee Mawee, and that got turned into Pete Seeger's group, The Weavers, in the 1950s, performed, performed it as Awee Mawee, and then the doo group, The Tokens, uh, in 1961, kind of rewrote the song into The Lion Sleeps Tonight, which was a much 
a much bigger hit. And from there, there are probably hundreds. I doing research for this, I found an EP of cover versions of by of the Lion Sleeps Tonight by South African artists, including biggest names like Lady Smith, Black Moon Baza. Mm. But Solomon Linda got very little publishing. He really got screwed over in terms of publishing royalties. Even by 1950s or 1960s dollars, he should have earned millions in publishing royalties. And he earned maybe like 1% from The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Yeah, it's what what comes to mind when I hear that is, you know, we tend to think of certain kinds of music from other countries as let's say indigenous music and because it has a, such a, a different sound to our ears that we think oh that's just their traditional music and as and if anybody anybody who knows anything about the music industry there are songs that are either so that are so old or so steeped in tradition that they have either always been or reverted to what's called the public domain, meaning no one has to pay royalties to, about, uh, you know, to any of those songs. And we tend to lump together songs that have that sound to them as, oh, that must just be some, you know, traditional uh, public domain song that everyone sang in their groups in South Africa. So we can just take that. That's no big deal. Not checking the fact that there's this dude who's just like any other singer songwriter from any other country who put this song together, created it and wanted to disseminate it and market it and make money from it. And it's a convenient way for, you know, those people to use songs like that and say, Oh, I didn't know. And then, Oh, we, then we don't have to pay royalties until somebody finally steps up and says, you owe this person money. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's a history of white artists going to, using South African music and other forms of African and African-American music without payment or, or crediting the artists. I know if I tried out the phrase cultural appropriation, some of your listeners are probably going to instantly tune out. And a lot of the times that it's used are sometimes very petty or can even have this kind of segregationist undertone. But there's a real history, for instance, Serge Gonsberg, on his 1965 album Percussions, sampled both the Nigerian drummer Ola Tunji and the South African singer Miriam Makiba without giving them credit, asking for permission, or paying them. And then Malcolm McLaren, the Sex Pistols manager, he released an album in 1982, Duck Rock, which was it was kind of one of the first albums that went from someone who had a background in rock music, recording music around the world. He went to, there's some old school hip hop on it, like Buffalo, Buffalo Gals is a really well-known well known song. Uh, he recorded several songs, you know, with this hip hop group called the World's Famous Supreme Team. But he also went to Colombia and South Africa. And the first time I heard the album, I found it bizarre because he adds very little to those songs. He's not really a singer. So there are these songs that sound are obviously African musicians who aren't credited. Their names don't appear. They're not listed on the official song songwriting credits. There were two groups he worked with. There was a band, I think, called the Boyo-Yo Boys, that he he both worked with them and played plagiarized their song. There's a good reason why people are suspicious of white artists drawing inspiration from other culture. 
Yeah, because it's happened since forever. I always found Malcolm McLaren interesting because it, people don't know he basically put together the Sex Pistols, and it was as though he he was more of a businessman and, and kind of a you know a showman and huckster than anything else. And he did have a love for music, but how he used that was he would find the thing that he thought was the next big thing and put it together any way he knew how, you know, good or ill, which is how he got from punk to Buffalo gals in just a few years without much consideration about the musicianship or the musicians doing it or anything like that. And that's, yeah, that's unfortunately a tradition of colonialist countries, including ours. Yeah. He also played a role in introducing African rhythms to rock music. The band Bow Wow Wow that he managed after the Sex Pistols. I think they were originally Adam Ant's backing band, mm. and McLaren persuaded them to leave Adam and join up with this teenage girl, Annabella Lewin. And there's an album on Nonsuch. I'm not sure the name of it, but there's a song of drumming from, from the country of Burundi. It's been sampled all over the place, but the beat from that was basically the beat that Adam and the Ants and Bow Wow Wow used. Okay. So if someone heard it, they probably recognize it. Yeah, they, they didn't sample it. They played variations on it. Yeah, I found it interesting. I was kind of doing a little research and, like you said, starting in the 1930s and all of that. And it reminded me how even from the beginnings of jazz, you would hear African influence. And a lot of jazz, of course, African-Americans and all of that. So there was something within the, the DNA already. But then you go to people like, you know, Duke Ellington or Count Basie or some of the other big band, you know, uh, people and composers who would have that, you know, for want of a better phrase, they what they would call jungle drum sound where, you know, like uh, the song, I forget the name of the song. Uh, da 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 and that was the american version of what they heard of as african music and that continued through the decades with people like pete Seeger and the lion sleeps tonight and you know you finally have african uh stars south african in particular coming over and making uh, some splash in the 60s and 70s and all of that I remember in the 80s, even before Graceland, when you had people like David Bowie and Gabriel, Peter Gabriel, integrating some of that sound into what they were doing. And then, you know, you say, bow, wow, wow. And then I think of something as pop as Michael Jackson or Lionel Richie, where they had those that chanting sections in some of their songs, which were African or African influenced. And that leads to Graceland and all and all of that. And so it's been this tradition of cherry picking sounds from Africa and South Africa to create more quote unquote exotic sounds in American music. Yeah. At the same time, there's been a bit Afro beats in the last two years has really soared in popularity in the U S the number three single right now is the Nigerian singer Rima's song, calm down. It's one of the biggest hits of the last year. But until 2021, no artist from Nigeria had ever made the Billboard Top 100. However, I was surprised how much that South African music was actually pretty popular in the U.S. in the 1950s and 60s. The first South African artist to hit the Billboard Top 100 was in 1956. If we think of Graceland as the starting point of the popularization of world music, well, the first South African artist to have an American hit was 30 years before that album came out. That's incredible. 
that was the group, the Manhattan Brothers, with love, song Lovely Linda. And they included Miriam McKeeva, who went solo shortly afterwards. She released her first solo album in 1960. She had a, a big hit in the U.S. in 1967 with the song Pata Pata. And then the trumpet player, Hugh Masakela, got to number one in the U.S., in 1968 with Grazing in the Grass. I love that song. And I think he was a part of the, uh, if anyone's seen Summer of Soul, I believe he performed there. And it was such a huge hit at the time. Yeah, that was the period where it wasn't just Americans translating South African music, that that there was, they would come to this country and try to make a name and make a career. And those were two, you know, Makiba and Yumasa Kaler, two huge, you know, stars in the kind of jazz, funk, field an afro pop yeah and i'll just to note i looked up the manhattan brothers and i believe that song was called lovely lies oh yeah which that's fine but that that surprised me that that was uh, a billboard hit in the 1950s and i listened to it and i was like this is doo-wop yeah i can hear a lot of doo-wop in south african acapella music although late smith black mambaza built their entire their entire career on on acapella music. They didn't re- release an album with any other instruments until 1990. The fact that they had 10 members, there's a different sense of harmony and rhythm than you would get in doo-wop. But I think the songs that Paul Simon performed with them on Graceland seem to be real, pretty obviously referencing doo-wop, like the intro to uh, Diamonds on the Soles of, of Her Shoes, and then all this. It's kind of obvious that he could recognize the similarities, and he was thinking back to American music from when he was, he was much younger and seeing the resemblance. That's what's always fascinated me about uh, African artists, from at least from the 1980s. I don't have much memory prior to that, that their acapella music was so strikingly similar to um, American acapella groups, you know, whether it was sung in English or, or not. And when you talk about and when you brought up the point that South African and American music have kind of crossed currents from the beginning of popular music, you know, recorded popular music, it makes more sense that you have somebody like a Manhattan Brothers putting an ear to the ground of what was going on in the, in the States and singing this song in English and then creating a song that you wouldn't even know that it came from South Africa back then if you were just listening, oh, that's, a, that's just a doo-wop song. And then you have American artists like Paul Simon and, and every single doo-wop group, really, or anybody who was doing those kinds of harmonies, whether it was a cappella or not, putting an ear to the ground for South African music and saying, this is something we really want to integrate. And it to me, it's the a cappella and certain types of rhythms that have infiltrated music in our country for decades and really helped to shape our own music. Even the Beach Boys had an intersection with South African music. Really? In 1970, they started their own label, uh, Brother Records, and they signed a South African band called The Flames. The Flames didn't have that much success in the U.S., but then in 1972, Brian Wilson had basically dropped out the Beach Boys, and the group was kind of splintering. And they added two members of The Flames as full members of the Beach Boys. That only lasted for two years. I think there were only maybe two or three albums that they perform on, but one of them, Blondie Chaplin, does a lot of the lead vocals around on like the Beach Boys, Holland and Carlin the Passions. Oh yeah. 
I remember those. Wow, I had no idea the Beach Boys had anything to do with African music. Now, around that time as well, you made a note here before we started, uh, and we're going to get a little bit more into this in the second half of the of the talk. But yeah. you believe that the first, I think, protest song by an American was Gil Scott Heron's Johannesburg in 1975. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Miriam Makiba actually moved to the U.S. out of necessity because she was, her mother died in 1960, and the South African government would not even let her come back to the country to attend her mother's funeral. Mm. She wound up moving to the U.S., which at the time was not that different from, Jim Crow was basically our version of apartheid. And she became more politicized over the course of the 60s. She spoke out against apartheid at the UN in 1968. She was recording protest songs by the late 60s, and kind of that wound up kind of taking her career in the US. She also got involved with the Black Panthers and Stokely Carmichael, and she was back to moved back to Africa in the by the 70s. Although she still couldn't travel to South Africa. And when I think of her and how the politics intersected with the music and all that, and of course, a lot of that was happening in different ways in other types of music. What comes to mind, again, just knowing a little bit about her music is how much Nina Simone's music changed from relatively standard soul with jazz tinges. And then you see in the late 60s and early 70s how political she gets. And you can hear in some of what she does that influenced both on, from the political side and from the music side. She was married to Masakela for several years, and they remained friends and collaborators. Masakela's music got more adventurous in the 70s. It's much more, Racing in the Grass is a great song, but it's very, if you hear it now, like the opening cowbells, I'm sure that's been sampled on probably dozens of hip-hop songs. <laughs> it was seen as kind of easy listening. Yeah. Jazz pop. His music got more have identifiably South African and, and funkier, maybe closer to like jazz fusion in the early 70s. And there was so much of that then too. You you would hear it from bands like Weather Report and, and all where you where this type of expansive sound was starting to shape jazz in the in the late sixties and especially in the seventies in ways that it hadn't before. Yeah, and I think they're most of Weather Report's lineups. Every member was from a different country, at least until both Jaco Pistorius and Wayne Shorter were in the group. But, you know, Joe Zavano was Austrian. I think the original drummer was Brazilian. The original bass player was Czech. So we were talking a little bit about the 70s and the Gil Scott Heron song, and that brings to mind how over the ensuing decade, decade and a half, our awareness of what was going on in South Africa uh, increased to a greater degree. We were more aware in this country of apartheid and what was going on. And there were, you know, people in, in politics and in, in art protesting against it and trying to make that change, which we know eventually did do something. And you had songs like this guy, Jeffrey Osborne, did a song called Soweto, which for some reason has always stuck in my head. And then we were talking about that song that was sort of like another supergroup, We Are the World, USA for Africa, uh, Sun City in the 80s to raise money and awareness for apartheid. Yeah. Stevie Wonder also did an anti-apartheid song. There was Peter Gabriel's Vigo. Right. Unfortunately, I think Sun City was a better idea than a song. Having something like 30 different singers singing and, and even rapping over the same production just didn't work for everybody's styles. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I think there's a 
nostalgia factor when I hear it now where I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember that song. But I also remember at the time thinking, I love that they're doing this, but it's not a song that I'm going to be, you know, spinning at a party and not because of the content, but, but just because it didn't quite hold together as a song. Yeah, it also wasn't that successful at raising money for charity. I think the lyrics have aged better than We Are the World, or certainly Do You Know It's Christmas. <laughs> yes. but, but the fact that it explicitly attacks Reagan meant that American radio barely played it. The song barely hit the top 40. I think it peaked at number 38. It raised a million dollars for anti-apartheid organizations, which is certainly nothing to sneeze at. But compared to the amount that it could have raised if it were pop- as popular as We Are the World, that would be exponentially higher, probably. Uh, okay. Yeah, I wondered that. I hadn't looked up how much money it raised or how successful it was. Oh. I can't remember, and I didn't look this up, but since we often talk about politics and social issues on this podcast. Do you have an idea of when I can't, I just can't remember when apartheid wound down when it finally was done away with, was that the nineties or two thousands? It was the early nineties. I'm not sure about the exact year. I should have looked that up. I think it may have been 1994. Okay. We were talking about this earlier, but I was a college student from 1988 to 1992. And it felt like the two biggest political issues that Americans were aware of were the kind of winding down of communism and the Cold War and South Africa and apartheid. And I think that music played a big role, particularly after the success of Graceland and making it feel like South Africa was at, was at the heart of the, you know, the modern world at that point. Yeah, I fully agree. I think there was that period where the biggest issue in the in the early 80s was AIDS and the, you know, the shit that the Reagan administration pulled and and how difficult it was to get uh, our cultures and the entire world through that hardship. And that was a real issue for way beyond that, but it was more prominent in the early 80s. And then you, you know, you started to see more awareness. Well, we we all knew, especially when Gorbachev took power, that something was happening there and that the, you know, the wall would come down and all that stuff and 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 things were winding down for for some reason. I recently saw a movie about uh, the game Tetris, and there was a lot of talk about the wall coming down and all the stuff that was happening there because Tetris came over from Russia before the wall came down, but right about when Gorbachev was starting to rise to power. And that is a memory from my 20s as well of thinking there's that, there's communism, and there's apartheid. And those were the big social causes. And you're right, you saw so many artists playing their concert in Russia, you know, whether it was Paul McCartney or Billy Joel or whoever else. And then so many other artists making music about South Africa or trying to work with people from South Africa. It seems though, like by the 90s, South Africa fell off the radar very quickly. I actually, I've been trying to think about the last time I read a news article about, about South Africa in The Guardian or The New York Times. And I absolutely cannot think of of it or what it was. The country still has very serious problems, sky high rates of HIV and AIDS. Most of the wealth is still in the hands of white people. It has a huge problem with violent crime, but Americans kind of stopped paying attention to it once apartheid ended. That was also reflected in music. It was like, quote unquote, world music was kind of a fad in the 80s. And then it in the 90s, people stopped it, I think it always had kind of a dedicated audience, particularly through things like the WOMAD festival that Peter Gabriel set up and 
he started a record label called Real World, and David Burns started a label, Luakabop, that released a lot of music from Latin America. But as, as something that it had a small niche audience, and honestly, that niche audience was kind of considered uncool if you were like, if you were a rock fan, for the most part in the 90s. If you're into indie rock in the 90s, you probably thought Graceland was laughable. That was my opinion at the time. I've come to think it's recognized that it's a great album. But it seems like there's been a, within the past 10 years, particularly with Emma Piano, there's been a revival of interest around the world, like not seeing it as quote unquote world music, but another genre of dance music. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I love that you say that. And I and I do remember it kind of falling off the face of the earth in terms of pop culture and how in the 90s, if you were still into what we would call world music, you were probably kind of a neo-hippie, you know, like yeah. that. Yeah. And and then it really diminished and and kept into its niche, you know, niches for quite a while. And it's like you said, in the last 10, 15 years or so, it's it's kind of slowly crept up to the point where in the last five years, there's been a real dominance of, well, of course, uh, music from, you know, Spanish speaking countries and K-pop. But I'm seeing a lot more from South Africa and other countries and Africa and I did an episode of earlier this season, which I called the Decade Slam, and I was purporting to say, with all the major genres, when did they actually have their peak? Commercialism and creativity and 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 critical acclaim and all of this stuff, and uh, you know, like rock had its peak in the whatever 60s, 70s. I can't remember what I said, but I said for the 20s, too early to tell, but it's looking like. This is finally when global music, music from other countries, isn't going to be just a fad or this kitschy kind of novelty thing, but it's actually making serious inroads into the fabric of American culture and the American, you know, pop uh, charts and all of that, evidenced by so many of the artists we know, you know, Bad Bunny and I mean BTS and any anybody like that, and and then lesser artists or artists that may, other people might not know. And then you mentioned a while back that the number three song in the charts is, is a South African song. Is that right? Nigerian. Nigerian. Wow. It didn't fully take off as a hit till a remix with Selena Gomez came out. Okay. That song, though, is possibly the, the most popular Afrobeat song ever in, in the U.S. The second most popular was Essence, a duet by the singers uh, Wizkid and Thames. Again, that didn't fully take off till a Justin Bieber remix was released. So I think a lot of a lot of the attention that's been paid to African music in the last decade, it's definitely benefited from North American artists picking up on it and trying to participate in it. When black artists have have done it, it's been they've been much better about giving credit to the original artists and doing it in a more equitable way. Like there are several South African artists on the Black Panther soundtrack that Kendrick Lamar put together. 
the rapper you can blackrock is featured on a song with the american rapper vince staples the rapper babes wadamo again i'm probably mispronouncing her name she has a style that mixes jacome and hip-hop where she's just rapping over jacome beats she's also featured on that and on the soundtrack that beyonce did for the lion king remake she did the same concept that kendrick did for the black panther soundtrack but she included far more african artists there's one song on that I included in the playlist that will accompany this that samples the Jacom song, and she sings on it. The American rapper Tierra Whack does, but so do uh, several South South African artists. And Drake has worked with the South African producer Black Coffee, who was one of the the main artists in the Quedo genre, which started in the 90s. It was frequently called South Africa's answer to hip-hop, but if you listen to it now, there's a lot of hip-hop in it. But there's also a lot of R&B, house music, dance hall. To me, it sounds more derivative than the than the South African music that it would that it would wind up inspiring. But the singer Brenda Fossey came out of that scene. She made a lot of really excellent music. Then Quedo led into Ama Piano and Chacom. Yeah, and I I mean I'm getting and I'm glad we did this episode because I'm getting more and more fascinated by the variety. Just a quick note that we talk a lot about appropriation and yet and that's been more true than not and especially historically, but there's been a lot of amalgamation and integration and there have been artists through the decades who have supported you know more than adequately uh in the way that you're talking about remixes by justin bieber and helping to highlight and bring to the fore artists from other countries that wouldn't make an inroad here unless they had a name an american name attached to it uh harry belafonte did that in the early 60s with 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 hugh masakela and and miriam makiba and he's somebody who we know was political activist and who would you know always be fair and 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 all of that it certainly didn't start a trend i mean most people were you know taking advantage of the music and the people uh at that time to have these names in south africa attached to bigger names here in the states and for people to like the music as it is means that there's going to be more traction for that music itself and that if you know people are going to start discovering those artists more on their own if record companies from this country start to sign those people to their to american deals well so the rise of streaming as well as youtube and bandcamp also played a big role in this because there are there are labels that are based in South Africa who stream their music all over the world on Apple and Spotify. If people want to check check out Emma Piano, I would recommend looking up the releases of the label Piano Hub. It's not on Bandcamp. They're distributed in South Africa by Sony, but you can find their music on American streaming services. And you can find even on as far as things that are not official releases like DJ mixtapes. If you search Emma Piano Mix on YouTube, you'll hit a pretty big rabbit hole. You can even see, like that producer I mentioned, Black Coffee, you can see videos of him DJing all over YouTube. The first time I heard Jacome was in 2017. I heard the producer Domino Wee. He released his debut album then. It was actually on an Italian label. It was called Giacomo. It was founded by an Italian man who was really passionate about the genre. Their first release was a compilation called This is Giacomo, but I could go to Bandcamp and download that. If it were an import, 
In the 80s, I never saw imports pressed in Africa. They never made it to the record stores that I went to. I would see things like the Indestructible Beat of Soweto compilation. There was actually a brief period around the early 80s before Graceland, like Bob Marley had died. Island Records quickly signed King Sonny Ade afterwards. You know, reggae had been popular in the punk scene and the post-punk scene. And there was starting to, an interest in African music starting to develop. There's a compilation called Zulu Jive. I think it's music from the early 80s that's very raw guitar-based. There was a band from Zimbabwe called the, the Bundu Boys, who strangely, the guitar playing sounds an awful lot like the Smiths. I'm pretty convinced Johnny Marr was listening to, to allow this music around the time of the Smiths' first album. You can hear a lot of similar methods of playing rhythm guitar. Yeah. But then I think, unfortunately, when the music found an international audience, it got slicker and more compromised. For instance, the first album were Lady Smith, Black and Bazo. They released an album in 1990 called Two Worlds, One Heart, where they used synthesizers and collaborated with George Clinton and started singing in English at times. And it's a pretty good album, but you can tell the music was starting to get watered down to try to reach an international audience. In particular, they benefited greatly from working with Paul Simon. Graceland basically got them an international deal with Warner Brothers and an audience around the world. But like I was saying, the earlier music was almost, some of it was almost like an African version of punk. That was not the music that became popular, African music that became popular in the U.S. after Graceland. Yeah, I, I think that in this country, we either need the music to have this distinctive style of its country, like we talked about before. Oh, that's what that music sounds like. And then it becomes, oh, wow, I've discovered something interesting or it needs to be packaged and produced in a way that's palatable to to us, like the Ladysmith Black Mombazo album or yeah. or in a different way, like the remixes that we have today. Yeah, I don't think any Emma Piano or Jacom songs have made the Billboard Hot 100. Emma Piano is much mellower. They both came out of Durban around the same time, like the mid-2000s. But Jacome is really is really kind of harsh and grim music in a lot of ways. There's usually one, one synthesizer chord and layers of fairly complex percussion over that. Whereas Emma Piano is almost the flip side, where the songs are very sunny. And neither of them are all that melodic, actually. There's an emphasis on piano chords, which are usually influenced by jazz in Emma Piano. But the melody isn't really coming from the piano. There's also a tendency in Emma Piano. The average song is about seven minutes long. There are a lot of albums that run as long as two and a half hours. Whoa. Researching this, I was never able to find why that's the case. A lot of the music, especially in the 2010s, was kind of handed around on, on WhatsApp. And producers would, instead of paying radio stations or Spotify playlists to promote their music, they would pay cab drivers to play it in their, in their taxis. Wow, cool. You know, their passengers would hear the music and like it and pick up on them. Oh, that's clever. It's like a grassroots, you know, payola kind of. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's going to be interesting seeing where all of this goes. You know, I, I browse through your playlists and listen to almost all of the songs. And uh, I am going to put that list in some form here for everybody. Uh, if I have time before this is released, I will even create, let's say, a YouTube playlist from it so that it will be easier for people to get. And you mentioned some uh, compilations and things. And so we'll have all that. But I want to say off the bat that from my 
cursory listen to all the songs. There's a lot of electronic music in, you know, as there is here in the States. Not all of it is. There's some organic instruments and all of that. And I like the diversity. And my favorite tracks so far, what I've heard, are Show Majosi's John Cena, Desire, Morea, Be Free, and I may be mispronouncing too, Mellow and Sleazy and T-Man Express's Vin Diesel. They all have somewhat different sounds. The last two are a little bit closer to each other. But I think that, and I do have maybe more diverse taste than the average American listener, possibly, but I feel like a lot of what I've heard is, first of all, the playlist had a lot of collaborations with people. You mentioned a few of them, like Tierra Whack and Beyonce and all of that. But even the ones that are just strictly only South African artists sound like they are from that country. Like they're an interpretation of things that are happening in that country, in our country and whatever. It's got its own flavor, but it's not overproduced and slickly polished to the point where it has become Americanized. And yet the sound to me sounds like it's something that could actually fly here as far as popularity. Uh, Yeah, I think house music, particularly, I think deep house music is a specific genre, not just a term. There's a kind of house music that has really soulful vocals a big R&B influence that really fed into Emma Piano. I can also hear a lot of kind of quiet storm R&B in it. But one of the defining aspects of Emma Piano was the use of log drums. Oh, really? Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Typically, Emma Piano albums are made by a producer, and the song will say their name, and then five five other people will be... Fe- okay. They have a rotating cast of vocalists. Yeah. And songs will typically be credited to five different people. When I was doing a, a couple of different episodes on very different music, there, that happened in the in the UK a lot, in the uh, you know late 80s and through the 90s, where you would have a production kind of collective that would like... Soul to Soul was an example... And then they would have vocalists come in or different musicians come in and do their thing. And and sometimes it would be under one name. And sometimes you would see a list of like five different you know artists. And I find that really interesting and compelling for, with South African music, primarily because it means there's a whole hell of a lot going on there with a lot of artists and a lot of producing. Well, also, if you like a song that a singer is featured on, you, you can then look, look, look up their name and find more of their, their music. Yeah. I would say out of the music I included in that playlist, Citizen Deep's Arcade is my favorite album to come out of the current South African scene. He's a producer. Arcade is supposed to be the first in a trilogy of albums. Arcade 2 came out around the end of last year, and Arcade 3 is supposed to be on the way at some point this year. But that song... Mama said that I included the vocals could be are, are straight out of American R&B. Yes. But there's a real emphasis on vibes and mood and a really long groove rather than something that, you know, to get has to be three minutes to get radio play. Or these days, TikTok has made that even even shorter. And South African music is actually going in the opposite direction of long songs, long out that kind of, I can see them flowing together at a dance club really really nicely. Yeah. And to me, that's what it reminds me of because I had done this episode on progressive rock. And when I read a book about it, it was talking about how we don't realize how progressive rock influenced other forms of music that don't seem related at all. And one of them they mentioned was all the various forms of dance music, whether you're talking about a Donna Summer song that's eight minutes long or anything from techno and house 
remixes, 12 inches especially, that the intention was to create this move, this vibe, this rhythm that people could continue to dance to, whether it was a mellow one or a really energetic one or something in between. And that's what I'm a Piano reminds me of. It's interesting because Jacome is really a sibling scene and that has some, there have been some synthesis of the two genres, but even Shoma Josie and Babes Wadamo are kind of doing the most successful version of Jacome that I've heard, but even their music doesn't really have any melody to it. My Josie's John Cena is the one Jacome song that's come, come closest to being a hit in America that got her a US deal with Sony. Oh, okay. And there's an Emma Piano song called Jerusalem. By Master KG that that blew up on TikTok, but currently, you know, Afrobeats. I think South South African music is also starting to influence music in Nigeria. There's a genre in Nigeria which is kind of a rougher version of Ama Piano. Ama Piano tends to be very. I don't mean this is a criticism, but you can picture it as background music in a restaurant. Right, right, right. It's very smooth. You could take it further into like almost smooth jazz. I know there's a form in Nigeria that's a bit that's a bit rougher. Wow, well, I'd be interested in hearing that. I mean, I you know there's certain kinds of that smooth music that I do enjoy, uh, and I and I'd like to explore Ama Piano a little bit more. But the Nigerian version sounds really compelling to me. You know, now I, I guess we're getting close to the end of our our time, and I, I think the only comment that I would want to make is this is a perfect illustration of how you can pick any single country and A, you'll find it connected to so many other countries and styles of music historically and currently, but B, even an hour or however long you want to earmark is not enough to fully explore what is going on in just that single country. And my hope is that all of you out there and and us included are getting a bit of a primer as to what, what is in South Africa, but also, and that you'll explore more. And that's why these playlists and things are here, but also that this will spur us to pick some other countries that deserve a spotlight and kind of dig into them too. Do you have any like closing thoughts or comments? Well, certainly, like I said, Nigeria is kind of dominating commercially in terms of African countries and the rest of the world. The Afrobeat scene there is really worth checking out, but also Afrobeat and Afrobeats sound nothing like each other. There's an Afrobeats compilation from about 2016 that I I forget how I came across. I was expecting something that sounded like Fela Kuti. And it was all these artists who are now quite popular, like Wizkid and DeVito. It was obvious that they were trying to compete with with Drake and Rihanna and Beyonce internationally. It took me a while to adjust to that. I think there is a tendency for Americans to value African music, for to see it as being outside pop, where which is not necessarily how the artists themselves see themselves. Yeah, there are a number of really interesting music scenes around around Africa. I would all recommend checking out the Bandcamp page of the label Hakuna Kulala, which is based in Uganda. For instance, they released an excellent album this year by the Kenyan rapper MC Yala. Okay. But there's there are a couple of bands from the Democratic Republic of the Congo who have gone to the junkyard to make their instruments. Huh. And building drums out of garbage cans and building instruments that sound like electric guitars, but are like scraping 
There's a band called Coco Co, who I think broke up. They had a video called Malembe, which is pretty amazing. The singer plays what sort of sounds like a guitar solo, but he's actually scraping. He's scraping a, a box of wood that has a contact mic and distortion pedal right under it. Oh. And their drummer is also playing a kid partially made out of plastic water bottles. Wow, you can't get any more DIY than that. Yeah, of course, poverty is a big part of the reason why you would, you know, not be able to afford to pay $500 yep. for a guitar and you'd have to make or a drum set and you'd have to make your own instruments from the junkyard. No, that makes total sense. Wow. See, and yeah, again, you're just bringing up things that, that warrant their own, you know, discussion all, you know, all by themselves. Thank you for spending this time with me. I learned a lot. I hope everyone else did. Uh, and and uh, like I said, the main thing is I really want to listen to a lot more of this. Well, I, I hope that, that your listeners enjoy the playlist and get introduced to some of their new favorite artists and realize how approachable this, this music is even if you don't necessarily understand the language that, that it's sung in. Yeah, don't be afraid. You know, I think rightfully so, we've been vilifying the word exotic lately because it distances us from other experiences and other cultures. And I think that we need to think of that because the music might sound slightly different to our ears or maybe very different. But if you listen more closely, you'll find a lot more commonalities and I think that's a I think that's a good place to leave it right now because we're kind of running out of time. But uh, again, thanks, Steve, for spending this time with me. Sure, this was great. And everybody out there, uh, I'm going to put a link. Uh, I, I I did inter- as you may know, I interviewed Steve a little while back. Uh, there, you know, you should explore uh, Steve's music and writing as well, and definitely explore the playlists and and compilations that we've put here. And thank you for spending this time and watching and listening. And uh, as always, my Objectives here are music, conversation, and connection. I will talk to you next week. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.